As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. EWA-517, do you want to report a UFO? Negative. We don't want to report. Aries-31, do you wish to report a UFO? Over. Negative. We want to report one of those either. Uh, Aries-31, do you wish to file a report of any kind? Over. I wouldn't know what kind of report the file's Aries 31, uh, me neither. Aries 71, pop the golf, go ahead. Yeah, there was anybody at uh, Papa? 
above us. It passed us like 30 seconds ago. Number 71, Papa Golf, negative. Okay. Something this. A UFO. Yeah. It's emergency 295. Yeah, something just passed over. It's uh, like a, don't know what it was, but it's at least two, 3,000 feet above us. Yeah, it passed right over the top of us. 911. You guys busy? Yeah. Did we just call them off the vehicle all the time? Mm -hmm. They're out there. Same airplane. Welcome to UFO Chronicles, a place where people share their experiences of the strange and unexplained. If you've had an encounter and would like to be on the show, you can email me at ufochronicles at gmail.com. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for stopping by wherever in the world you're listening from. We have a fascinating show tonight. Our guest, Terry, has one of the most interesting and also disturbing abduction accounts I have heard. It began on a camping trip in 1977. Terry was a 22-year-old staff sergeant in the United States Air Force. Terry and his friend Toby went on a two-night camping trip to an state park known as Devil's Den. They planned the trip as a wilderness adventure. Instead of a wilderness adventure, an encounter with something unimaginable. Lawyer and former assistant attorney general and author of the gripping and utterly compelling book Incident at Devil's Den. Terry Lovelace, up next. I'd like to welcome Terry Lovelace to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. We're certainly honoured to have you here today, Terry. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing this encounter and the aftermath. Terry, would you like to start at the very beginning for our listeners? There's really three components to the story. That is, uh, my experiences as a child, my experience, the uh, big experience in 1977, and then the, the 2012 discovery of the implant in my leg. So those are kind of the three seminal events that, uh, that occurred. The genesis of this, my story goes back actually to 1977. I was active duty in the United States military in the Air Force for from 1973 to 1979. And I worked in a hospital emergency room as a medic and an EMT, drove an ambulance. And I worked the night shift. A friend, a friend of mine named Tobias, I refer to him as Tobias in the book, uh, we worked together for almost four years. Um, we both chose to work the graveyard shift because he lived to watch the night sky. Uh, he was an amateur astronomer. He knew all the constellations. He could predict when satellites would come over. He's a very knowledgeable guy. I chose the night shift because uh, there were less officers around and uh, I, was, I was taking classes at the time. I could do my homework. So we worked the night shift together and my friend came to me and said one day, he says, this is like about May of 1977. He says, hey, man, I got a great idea. Let's go camping. And I was just stunned. I'm like, 
Toby, you know, we're city kids, man. I grew up in St. Louis. You grew up in Flint. What do we know about camping? I had never been camping in my life. I was 22 years of age. He was 23. He'd never been camping in his life. So I said, I, I don't understand. Why do you want to go camping? And actually, he had a pretty good explanation. I had a reputation in the squadron as being an amateur photographer. And I had a new camera. And I wanted to photograph some wildlife. Toby and I both lived in base housing, NCO base housing. Whiteman Air Force Base uh, at the time, well, still is, a nuclear base. Back then it was K, uh, B-52 bombers armed with nukes and the Minutemen II intercontinental ballistic missile system spread out all over the farmland. So when you live on a nuclear base, there's not a lot of opportunity to take photographs. So his idea was to drive to Devil's Den State Park, which is about a six-hour drive south, and find some high ground. There were, there were some, uh, some spots of high ground, high limestone ridges and the like. And he thought that if we went down there, we could set up a camp and have a nice view of the night sky without light pollution, and I could photograph wildlife. And I told him, I said, you know, that's not a bad idea. You know, talk to my wife about it. You talk to your wife about it. You know, hey, if we like it, we'll take our wives the next time and make it a, you know, an outing. And and I said, you know what? I don't know how to go about doing this. And he's like, oh, come on, man. This isn't rocket science. You know, all we need is a $10 tent and uh, some water and some sandwiches and uh, some hot dogs and matches and we're good to go. So we did. We just kind of uh, played it by ear and we... Uh, Packed up, and on June 11th, 1977, I think the 11th is the day, it was a Saturday, early Saturday morning, uh, we drove to Devil's Den State Park. And I didn't know it at the time, but Devil's Den does have a long-standing history of unexplained disappearances and anomalous events that are just, just outright strange. Uh, before I tell you about my experience, I, I want to share one with you. When I was writing the book in uh, 2017 and researching it, I had called the park and tried to get records of people that had gone missing and found out that they don't keep that information. They don't share it. In August 2017, there was a 32-year-old man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, named Rodney Letterman. Rodney Letterman and a friend went to Devil's Den State Park and were walking along the Butterfield Trail. When he realized, he says to his friend, I need my inhaler. Would you run back to the truck and get my inhaler for me? So his friend says, sure. You know, they, they were a quarter mile down the trail is all. So his friend runs back, gets the inhaler, comes back, and Rodney's gone. Rodney Letterman has disappeared. And all that's left is his mobile phone is on the ground. And he called, called out for Rodney, and Rodney didn't answer and got the park rangers involved. And they thought, well, you know, he's been missing for 15 minutes. He can't be far. And it became a full-blown search. And uh, they, used, they used bloodhounds from the Russellville Police Department. Uh, they got the scent off the cell phone and sat down, which, according to the dog handler, means he's not here. <laughs> you know, we don't have a track to follow. I mean, he could have gone up or down, but uh, he didn't walk away from that spot. And they never did find Rodney Letterman, despite a massive search and use of high technology uh, helicopters and airplanes with uh, forward-looking infrared radar to look for a heat signature. 
and nothing until this year, until 2019. In March of 2019, uh, they found his skull cap, the crown, the top of his skull, sitting on a log right on the Butterfield Trail in plain sight in an area that had been walked over and, and searched hundreds of times. Uh, they had it DNA tested, and it was it was his the top of his skull, and uh, that's all they ever found of Rodney Letterman. It's a very strange story, and that, uh, like I say, they found his remains in uh, March of this year, 2019. So I could give a dozen examples. It 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 has a long-standing reputation for being just a very strange place. I reached out to. I found that the the land uh, was claimed by two Native American tribes, the Kahino and the Cato tribes. And I was able to speak with a medicine woman from the Cato tribe who shared with me, she said, you know, well, we can transit through that area. But in our culture, it's considered cursed ground. And it's against the rules to camp there, to hunt there, to fish there. The only thing you can do is walk across it. And she says, and it has been that way as far back as anyone in my tribe can remember. I, I thought that was very interesting. And I, I contacted a friend at Michigan State University in their anthropology department. And they did archaeology uh, in, the, in the Ozark area. And I was told that they found Neolithic tools all around, uh, you know, stone, arrowheads, spear points and the like. Uh, pottery, shards, all around Devil's Den, but within the area of Devil's Den State Park itself, uh, they've never found anything. They've never found any trace of Neolithic man living there. So, you know, I think this has been cursed ground for forever. Nobody, I searched, I could not find the genesis of the name Devil's Den. I don't know who named it Devil's Den, but uh, usually there's a reason behind the name. And of course, in 1977, my friend Toby and I were completely unaware of this. They have a very nice campground where you can stay that has hot showers and electric hookup and the like. And we decided to avoid that because of the, the light pollution. And, you know, we'd have people right next to us on either side. It wouldn't be like real camping. You know, we wanted to be uh, outdoorsmen, you know, we, novices as we were. We wanted to, to get out in the country and uh, see what we could do, see what we could find. And that's what we did. We uh, skirted the park rangers, dodged the uh, kiosk where you sign in, the, the welcome center, and we drove until the blacktop turned to gravel, turned to dirt road, and we came to a chained off part of the fence uh, of the road. The road was there was a chain across the road, and there was a sign that said absolutely no admittance. And I thought, oh no, well I guess we're I guess we're stuck. And I, you know, I guess we'll turn around and go back. And my friend Toby says, no, man, wait a minute. And he hops out of the car. Uh, he could see that the chain had just been looped over itself with a padlock. And he was able to get out of the car and just lift that chain up over the post and let it drop. Chain went to the ground and we drove in. And that's when we were able to get on kind of an incline and gain some altitude and find some high ground. On my Facebook page, I have uh, the Facebook page Incident at Devil's Den. I have the uh, the pictures from Google Earth and uh, the map coordinates and the like. 
And curiously enough, the place where we camped, as I described it in my book, is horseshoe-shaped. When you look at it from the air, it's more triangular. But the rocks, the large rocks are still there and still visible. Um, curiously, somebody mows that area. Now, you know, the top of that, that plateau should be covered with 40-year-old mature trees by now. But it's not. The office, it's owned by the uh, Department of the Interior or it's owned by a federal agency. And they pay to have the top of that plateau cut. A reader of my book who zoomed in on it, he said he's a landscaper and says this is absolutely, you know, groomed with with, uh, machinery to keep the grass down. So that's kind of a mystery to me. Why, Why the government pays to have that place, that top of that plateau mode. And my guess is it's still because it's still a landing field. Let me get back to our camping trip. When we arrived at Devil's Den State Park, we set up camp next to a tree line. And, you know, we did all the fun things that uh, you do when you camp, barbecue hot dogs and make a bonfire. And we uh, had some blow-up air mattresses. And we're sitting back on these air mattresses around the campfire. And by this time, it's 9 o'clock in the evening. And we're getting tired. This was a long drive. I remember saying to my friend, I said, you know, Toby, I understand now why people like this. This is really pretty pleasant. And he's like, yeah, man, I told you this would be nice. And, and, it, and it was nice. And, uh, and this sounds cliche, I know, but I swear to you that this is true. I noticed that all the sounds of the forest that we'd heard earlier, like the tree frogs and the crickets and the like, all those sounds were gone. And it was just quiet. And it seemed like it was quiet all of a sudden. Even the uh, the breeze that we'd enjoyed earlier had died down. And it was it was still, the silence was like, like being in a closed audio booth. And I got to say that it unnerved me. I uh, to the point where I wanted to to go, but I, I was I didn't voice that to my friend. I did ask him. I said, you know, man, it's awfully still out here. Is this is this normal? And he was reassuring, and he says, yeah, man, look, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up. We made a lot of noise. The crickets, the insects, the tree frogs, all those things. They'll be back. They'll come back as soon as we quiet down a little bit. So I kind of put it aside. And uh, we went on with conversation. And uh, shortly thereafter, my friend turns his head to his left and is occupied looking at something. And I'm like, I'm about to ask him, what are you looking at? When he says, he asked me the question, hey, man, were those lights on the horizon? Were those there before? And I leaned back and looked over his shoulder to his left and on the horizon uh, remember, we're on a plateau. We're on a piece of high ground, so we have pretty good visibility, 360 degrees. And sitting just above the horizon, there were three stars. And the stars were about the same luminosity as a North Star. So they were pretty bright. And they were sitting in a tight little triangle, again, just up, just above the horizon. They were, they were too far above the horizon to have been lights from a, a mall or parking lot or a train or something. Uh, and we were familiar with aircraft. We didn't know of any aircraft that had that triangular configuration as a, for, for lights. And besides, it was, it was still, it wasn't moving. So we're debating this 
for a couple of minutes. And then right in front of our eyes, the things move. And the three points of light that formed a perfect triangle, they rotated like they were on an axis. And they turned about three quarters of a, about a three quarter turn, not quite all the way. And then they began to ascent. They began to climb up into the sky. It was about that time that I, I went from feeling excited to feeling calm for some reason. The best way I described my that sense of calm that overtook me was just shy of sedation. It was, you know, where I was unnerved by the absence of the forest sounds just a few minutes earlier. Now I'm all right with it. And I'm all right with this thing in the sky. And uh, and that was just not not correct. We we did not react properly. And as it as it moved up into the sky, I was curious. I and I asked my friend, is this are we looking at one object here? Or are we looking at three perfectly choreographed independent objects? And Toby says, No, no, no. He says, Look, there were a trillion stars out that night, and the light from the starlight was bright enough to cast a shadow. And we could see that the area inside the three triangles was dark black, where the the sky surrounding the triangle was a blue color. And as it rose into the sky, it got bigger and it expanded. It stayed, uh, there were three points of light, uh, one point of light on each of the, of the apex of the triangle. And as it expanded, it, of course, those always remained equidistant to one another. And it was obviously just getting closer to us and higher into the sky. And I told Toby, I said, man, I think that thing's headed in our direction. And he didn't answer me. And I think he was sedated or not quite with it either. From our vantage point, uh, we could see this black triangle shadow move across the forest floor below us. And this thing would tumble because it got fairly large on, on its ascent up. And it would tumble and kind of go where we would see two lights and then three lights. And it would go, you know, the light would come up from behind because if you rotated a triangle, that's what you'd see. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, this thing is moving with purpose. This isn't just tumbling through the sky. It's moving with a purpose. And in retrospect, I thought that was an odd thing to think. But that's that's the impression that I had. Soon it was close to us. And then it was right over us. And it stopped at about 3,000 feet, would be my guess. And I'm, I'm, I think it's a pretty good estimate. So at 3,000 feet above our heads, there's this giant black massive triangle. And it has lights on all three corners. And that those lights are casting light out into the forest. But the underneath of the thing, the bottom of it, is not illuminated at all. And it's just matte black, flat black in color. And when it reached that, that altitude of 3,000 feet, it, it came to a dead stop. We were just offset from it. We weren't directly underneath the thing. We were offset just a bit. We were on the tree line, and this thing filled. Uh, if you look at the aerial photographs of the area, you can see it's shaped like a triangle. And this thing was right directly over that triangle. And what happened next was there was a light that came from underneath of this thing and in the center. And it was a a visible beam of, of light. It was a white light, like a high power searchlight cuts through rate, cuts through, uh, through fog. You can see it. It's visible, but there was no fog. It was just this visible white light about six inches in diameter. 
and it came from the center of the craft, and we could trace it with our eyes all the way up to the center of the craft, so we knew that's where it came from. And this light, it turned on like someone just flipped a switch. It was there, and it was centered directly in the middle of our campfire. And it stayed there for probably a minute, and then it turned off, like again, like someone just hit a switch and turned it off. Then immediately thereafter, there came a laser beam. And you know, lasers were kind of new, a new concept in 1977, at least for the public. I had only seen them on television. This was a purplish laser beam about the diameter of a pencil. And it originated from the same point underneath the craft. What it would do is the laser beam would land at a spot and stay there for a tenth of a second and then reappear in a different area and stay at that point for a millisecond and then move on. So it gave the illusion that this thing was dancing all over our campsite. And I know that the beam of light, the laser light, struck me at least twice. I know it hit my friend Toby. I felt absolutely nothing. And that I, I remember thinking, this thing is scanning us. And again, it's another odd thought. I mean, but I guess it made sense. I really had the impression it was checking us out. That lasted for probably three minutes. That turned off abruptly, and we're laying there looking at this thing. And that's when the sedation, that calm feeling that I had felt earlier, overwhelmed me. And all I wanted to do was sleep. And I didn't care if there was a UFO the size of an office building hanging over my head. It didn't matter. All I wanted to do was sleep. And my friend Toby spoke up, and he startled me because it was quiet out. It was still dead quiet. And his words were, show's over. And he stood up and he picked up his air mattress and he dragged it behind him over to the tent, tossed it in the tent, fell on top of it. And I was right behind him. I threw my air mattress in. I wanted my head near the front of the tent. I didn't bother to take off my boots. I didn't bother to take off my shirt. I, did, I just fell down on this air mattress. And my last conscious thought before I fell asleep was, you were wrong, Toby, because the crickets and the tree frogs, they never did come back. And it's still spooky out here to me. And I was out. I was i was absolutely unconscious. And we would come to find out later that the period that we were unconscious was about four and a half hours. Both of our watches had stopped. Because we were EMTs, watches were a necessary tool for, our, for our, what we did. And uh, I had a nice watch, a nice Elgin watch, and it stopped at 2.40. And Toby's watch had stopped. 241. And neither one of those watches ever ran again. I wish I had saved mine. I woke up. When I woke up, there were there were lights. That's what woke me, I think, were the lights. There was there were bright, I mean absolutely as bright as an old old school camera flash that would leave you blinking and seeing a blue dot in front of your eyes. Just incredibly bright flashes of light that would illuminate the interior of the tent. And I'm thinking, and, and the colors are yellow, greenish, and white. And I'm, I'm confused. I wake up and I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we're camping out here. That's what I'm out here with Toby and we're camping. And these lights, that must be the overhead lights of a ranger's truck. Yeah, they probably found us here and they're here to kick us out of the park. So in my mind's eye, I kind of made that conclusion. Uh, and I'm still foggy. I'm still in a daze. And I sit up. And I realized that I'm in a lot of pain. My joints ache. My body aches. I hurt everywhere. And in one of the bright flashes of light, I could see my friend. 
to my left. He was on his knees and he's looking at something out into the meadow. And I spoke up and I said, Toby, what are you looking at, man? And he says, be quiet. They're still out there. And I'm like, who's still out there? What are you talking about? Park rangers or something? And he was emotional. And uh, I got to my knees so I could take a look. And I peeled back my flap of the tent and I looked out and I saw two things. I saw that the craft that had been 3,000 feet over our heads five hours ago had descended and was now just about 30 feet above the meadow. And it was enormous. I really couldn't judge the size of it when it was over 30 at 3,000 feet. All I could judge was the size of the underside. But the depth of the thing, I, I really didn't get a chance to see until it descended to 30 feet. I describe it as a city block long on each leg of the triangle and five stories tall in depth. Curiously, that that, that same year, there was a uh, rash of sightings in the Hudson, Hudson River Valley near New York. And a very similar craft described as being massive and five stories tall was described by a woman. So I was absolutely terrified where I had that sedated feeling before. All that sedation is gone now. I'm absolutely scared out of my wits. The second thing I noticed, other than the triangle had descended, I saw these, what I first thought, thought were children. And there were about 15 of them, maybe 12, 15, somewhere in that range. And they're paired up in twos and threes. And they're just wandering around this, this meadow. And I asked Toby, I said, Toby, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And then I did remember. And then I got really scared. And he has his head on my shoulder and he's sobbing and hyperventilating. And I'm like, man, you got to get control of your breathing. And I look at these little guys again. They're not human beings. Their heads are disproportionately large for their bodies. They have uh, just absolute sticks for limbs, very, very thin torso. You know, I, I, I would guess that um, their torso, if you used a tape measure on it, would be probably 18 inches or something, tiny. And they also walked, all of them walked with a distinctive gait. They walked like they had sore feet. That's the best way I can describe it. And I'm watching these and I'm, I'm more terrified than I am amazed. And I, I'm careful to... Um, remain quiet and not open the flap too wide to disclose us because I felt like we were kind of hidden in the tent. I felt so, even though it was just canvas over our heads, I felt like it was, it was cover and we watched and they walked around for just a few minutes and there was a distinct, there was this thing, there was a humming noise attached to it too. Um, anyone who's ever stood next to a, diesel locomotive or a big piece of industrial machinery knows what I'm talking about. It's a sound that's not so much loud as it is deep and it reverberates in your chest. It's, it's, it's a powerful noise. And that's what I heard. So as I'm looking out, there's a column of light that drops from the center of the craft. And this column of light has that same quality to it that the first column of light we saw had, that being it's a white visible light. And it's a 30, it's 30 feet in diameter 
and it's in a circle, forms a circle on the on the metal. And these little beings in pairs and in threes would walk into this light and then we would see them dissolve into it. And we watched that until the last two little guys walked in there and walked into the light and disappeared. As soon as they were gone, that light shut off. And then immediately that droning noise, that, that really uh, deep throbbing noise stopped. And the lights on each point of the triangle that had been multicolored green and yellow and white switched to all white. We laid there and we watched the thing take off. And I mean, it, it didn't take off like an Atlas rocket. I mean, it just it just kind of rose up in the air like a uh, like a hot air balloon. But the higher it got, the faster it went. And we watched it till it was just three tiny lights in the sky and then one light and then gone. And I realized that it was still quiet. There still weren't, were no sounds in the forest whatsoever. And we sat there for probably a half an hour just trying to get our courage up to get out of the tent and run for the car because we didn't know if all of those little guys had gotten back aboard this thing and what if what if there were more of them out there and they you know took us again or something as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now 
and start listening to the very best in paranormal talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But finally, after about half an hour, my friend Toby says, look, man, we have got to leave this place and, you know, we need to do it now. And we're just going to make a run for the car. And I grabbed my car keys and made sure I had my wallet. And Toby grabbed a flashlight and he went out first. He ran to the car and I followed him. I He slipped and fell once and I actually got to the car before him and unlocked the car and slid across the big bench seat. And unlocked the door for him, and he got in and shut the door. And he asked me, and we all hit the locks, of course, and the car started right up. And Toby asked, are we good? Are you sure we're good? And I knew what he meant. And we took a minute, and we looked under the seats, and we looked in the back seat, and um, just we were just paranoid. We left our tent, uh, Toby's backpack with his camera and all of his personal belongings, all of my personal belongings, We left everything there. All we wanted to do was to put distance between us and this place. And then the second thing I wanted was something to drink. I had never in my life been so thirsty as I was after this. And the reason for that was we were both burned so badly. Our skin was red, but we never blistered. Whatever they did to me, they they gave a double dose to my friend because he he was really much worse off than I was. And he was curled up into a fetal position on the bench seat, and I drove the car. Six hours later, we pulled into Whiteman Air Force Base. And, you know, it was odd. There was hardly a word spoken between us. You know, you would think after after going through this big event, you would think we'd wanted to brief. You'd think we'd be talking about it. You'd think we'd be, you know, examining every detail of it. But it wasn't that way. We just didn't talk about it. So. I turned into the base and I dropped him off at his house in NCO housing. My house was just a couple blocks away. 
And I pulled into the driveway and I walked into the house. And my wife says, oh, you're home early. And she's like, oh, what happened to you? And I told her the truth. I don't know. You know, I had some memories of being inside this ship, but they were just fractions of memories, just fleeting images, frightening images. I certainly didn't have a clear linear memory of what happened to us over four and a half hours, uh, but I had some pieces of the puzzle. My wife says, my God, you're burning up. She took my temperature. It was hundred, just shy of 104. And she drew some cool bath water. And I said, please get me something to drink. And I drank and drank and drank. Then we went to the hospital. She took me to the hospital. Now, remember that Toby and I both worked at the hospital. So these people at the hospital, they, they weren't just co-workers. They were all our friends. You know, there, there was a sense of camaraderie. We were all in the same squadron. And uh, we all worked together. We certainly took care of our own. So when, when I got to the hospital, I got good medical care. I had probably the most thorough medical examination I've ever had. And I knew the doctor well. And I asked him, I said, you know, what's, you know, what's wrong with me? And he, he asked me, he says, well, what's wrong with you? What, what, what is wrong with you? What happened to you? Something happened to you, Terry. And I said, I thought to myself, you know, if I tell this guy, we saw a UFO the size of a Walmart, you know, in 1977, they're going to put me in a psych ward. They're going to send me for a psychological evaluation. And I wanted nothing to do with that because I, I, you know, I knew there wasn't anything. There was no issue with my sanity. This wasn't a hallucination. This was a shared experience with another human being. The two of us saw the same thing and experienced the same thing. So I told him half the truth. I said, you know, Doc, we had a pleasant evening. We went to bed and we just woke up sick as, sick as dogs here and decided to come home. And I don't know if he believed me or not, but it doesn't matter. I had second-degree burns. I, I didn't blister anywhere, but my skin was red. And I was burned under my arms, on the soles of my feet, uh, the, my scalp. Every single centimeter of my body was burned. And I had what they call arc welder's burn, or sometimes it's called flash burns. It's basically a sunburn on the cornea of your eye. And it's very painful. And it makes you very photophobic. You want to be in someplace dark. I didn't know it at the time, but when they admitted us to the hospital, we were classified as acutely ill. Curiously, they, they didn't put us on the enlisted man's ward. We got private rooms. And that was kind of unheard of for, for two NCOs to take, take up private rooms. And as I got settled into my room, the hospital commander, the base commander, and two guys I did not know who were in civilian clothes walked in. And the hospital commander and I were on, I mean, we recognized military courtesy, but we were on a, we could have a conversation. And he walked in and he was all business. And he says, Sergeant Lovelace, you're to have nothing to do with Sergeant Tobias. You're to have nothing to do with Sergeant Tobias. You're to have no contact with him whatsoever. That means no notes. No phone calls, no contact through any third parties. You're to give him nothing. He's to give you nothing. If you run into him at the grocery store, you turn around and walk in the opposite direction. Don't speak to him through relatives. Don't try to contact him. Do you understand me, Sergeant? And I said, yes, sir. But I really didn't understand him at all. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. I don't know why. 
and it was a strange emotion too, in that I really didn't didn't care to uh, to see Toby, uh, but I would see him again. I would see him one last time, and that would be right shortly before he left to go to Japan. They cut orders for Toby to go to Japan at light speed, and he was he was gone in a matter of weeks. I spent a total of three nights in the hospital, and on my last night there, these two guys in blue business suits followed my night nurse in, and you could just tell these guys were police officers. I mean, they, they carried themselves with that, that air of authority. They, they made no effort to hide that they had a shoulder holster with a pistol in it, and um, they asked the nurse. This, they, there, there was a guy about 50 years of age and then a younger guy about in his 30s, and the elder of the two said to my nurse, if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait. And shut the door on your way out. And I thought, geez, what, what, why is, why is this guy being so rude? So the nurse leaves in a huff and slams the door. I don't get my medication, my pain meds. And these guys pull out uh, badges with no, they're with, uh, they were from the Air Force Security Police Office of Special Investigation. And they showed me their credentials. I saw that the elder guy, the older guy was a major, the younger guy was a captain. And uh, I had never been in trouble before. You know, I was a very straight kid. I'd, I'd never been in trouble a day in my life. So to have these two cops come in with this attitude scared me. And he sat down and he said, we're going to have to ask you some questions. And he says, the park rangers found your little campsite. And your friend Toby, his address was in his backpack. So we didn't have too much trouble tracking you down. I want you to explain to me why you left your campsite intact and drove back to base. That tells me you intended to return. Now, do you have yourself a little marijuana plot growing down there? Is that what this is about? Now, that scared me, because this is 1977, and I'm on active duty. If I had been cultivating a marijuana plot, or somebody else had been cultivating a marijuana plot by happenstance, it could mean penitentiary, serious jail time. So he was trying to intimidate me, and he had succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. He I was scared to death by the guy. And they asked over and over, what were you doing down there? And I told them the truth. I said, look, we, we were just looking for a high spot. I wanted to take some pictures of eagles. And he says, well, how many eagles did you photograph exactly? And I said, well, none, because I, you know, we were, there was our first night there. And actually, sir, I left my camera at home. And he said, you left your camera at home? I, I, Toby had his camera. And he said, I don't know about that. I don't know if I believe you. So these guys gave me a really hard time. And one of the things they did was they swooped everything. The major swooped everything off my side table and rolled it underneath my chest and laid out six forms for me to sign. And this guy had this, this odd Southern accent, like from Louisiana. And I said, sir, what are these? And my eyes were just, I couldn't read if I had tried. And I... Uh, I asked him, I said, I, I, I don't know what I'm signing here. And he says, well, son, these are waivers and consent forms. They give us the right to take a look in your car. They give us the right to take a look in your vehicle. Now, you don't have anything to hide, do you? You got anything you want to hide from us? And I said, no, sir. And he said, well, then do you, you have any objection to us looking around? You know, I did have a lot of objection to that. But, you know, I was 22 uh, at the time without the benefit of a legal degree. I didn't know what my rights were. Uh, he read me my rights. I, you know, I didn't understand. So I signed these consent forms. 
and they were consent to search our car uh, and search our house. And and they did. And they did while they were while we were uh, while they were still in the room. The captain took the forms and left. And they concluded the interrogation. The major concluded the interrogation. The nurse was out of the room, and it was just me and this major. And this guy got down next to my ear with his left hand on the door so nobody could come in. And he whispered to me, he says, son, I know and you know you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there, didn't you? And I think you know what I mean. And I didn't answer him. And he says, oh, I know you know what I mean. And all I want to know is how many pictures you took of it, and I want your film. And it hit me. He thinks that we took pictures of this UFO. And he wants he wants he wants the photographs, and that made sense. I had this reputation in the squadron as being a you know an, an amateur photographer. You know, I'd even promised the squadron commander I'd bring him back uh, Ansel Adam quality prints for his office. There were no Ansel Adam quality prints. I said, sir, I, I never took a picture of anything. I don't have any film for you. I don't have my camera. And he turns on this tough guy look again and says, I don't believe you. And then he left. It was uh, probably six weeks later, uh, I got a call that they wanted to see me at the Office of Special Investigations, and they sent a car for me. And the car pulled up with the driver. I, I was wearing a uniform with a name tag, and he said, Sergeant Lovelace? I said, yes. And he opened the door for me, and I got, got in the car, and they drove, he drove me to the uh, OSI headquarters. And I got out, and he said, follow me took me through a double lock set of doors that you have to buzz to get through down a hallway. Uh, and there were a line of these interrogation offices, about a dozen of them. And they were marked alphabetically, A, B, C, D. I think I was in room D. And he opened the door with a key and said, have a seat and someone will be with you shortly. So that's what I did. I went in and I checked out the room and it was small, about the size of my bathroom with a framed mirror on the wall. And I thought, you know, who's going to, who's going to be worrying about their personal appearance in here? I don't, I don't think that's, that has to be one of those two way affairs. And I, and I wanted to go up to it and cup my hands and look and see if I could see behind the glass, but I, I didn't have the nerve to do that. And, uh, there was a, a desk and a comfortable leather chair, USAF issue from the 1950s. It was old, but it was comfortable. In the corner, there were three of those old fiberglass uh, scoop-looking-like chairs that they made in the 1960s, one in each corner. And I sat. And, oh, there was, a, there was a clock in the room directly over the door. And I took note of the time. And it was 9 o'clock, and then 10 o'clock, and then 11 o'clock. And it was close to noon before. I never saw anybody walk past the door either. There, there was a, about a five by seven window on the door. And uh, I never saw anybody walk by that, that, that door. And at about quarter to 11, quarter to 12, rather, uh, the two agents that interrogated me in the hospital room came in, seemed to be in a good mood. <laughs> they were talking about golf between them, kind of ignoring me. And they sat down and they got comfortable. And he kicked me out of the comfortable chair. The major did, of course, and commandeered that for himself. While I was sitting there, uh, he pulls out a manila folder and he says, well, you know, you're going to be hypnotized today, son. And I said, no, sir, I did not know that. And he says, well, you signed a consent for it. 
And I said, sir, but I don't understand why. why? I just don't understand why. And he got angry and he pulled the form out. He pulled out the consent form that I signed and he slammed it on the desk in front of me. And he says, is that not your signature, son? And I said, yes. Sir. And I said, but sir, I, 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 I couldn't read a thing. I didn't understand. I, I don't understand now why you're going to hypnotize me. And he says, because we want to know that you're telling the truth and I don't believe you. And I thought, you know, well, give me a polygraph or something, you know, why, why, why do this? But this, this was, I guess, standard protocol. He said, you're not thinking about withdrawing your consent, are you? And I said, sir, well, maybe. And he says, well, you had that right, son. You want to withdraw your consent? No problem. He says, I'll tear these consents up, throw them in a trash can here, and uh, we'll just end this. And then I'll just see you at the court martial. How about that? You want that? And that was a bluff, but I didn't know it at the time. I said, no, sir, I don't want that. Then there's a, a knock at the door, and there's a, a fourth person enter the room, and it was a major. Uh, he had the gold oak leaves, but curiously, he had no name tag. And he walked in, and he was just he was just an odd guy. He carried himself more like a, a priest or a therapist than he did a military officer. And he talked to the two guys. I guess he didn't golf. He talked to the two agents about fishing for 10 minutes and then turned his attention to me and in the comfortable, kicked the major out of the comfortable chair and commandeered it for himself. And it was on rollers. And he rolled it up right next to me, violating my personal space, rhyming right next to me. And he holds out his hand and he says, Sergeant Lovelace, it's so good to finally meet you. And I said, yes, sir. And I shook his hand. And he says, son, or he said, Sergeant Lovelace, for purposes of today's little exercise, would you call me Brad instead of Major? Brad is my name. And I thought, that's an odd thing. That's an odd thing for a military officer to request. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, uh-uh-uh, don't you mean yes, Brad? And I said, yes, Brad. And then he said, and Sergeant Lovelace, may I call you Terry? That is your name. And I said, yes, Brad. And I just got a creepy vibe from the guy. And then he started a little chit-chat conversation. I actually kind of got comfortable with the guy. And then you know, he asked where I was from. I told him St. Louis. He rattled off some landmarks. He's smiling. He's nodding his head. And after a few minutes of this, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not that interesting. And I think he picked up on my thoughts. I maybe betrayed by my facial expression or something. But he shifted gears and got back to business. And he says, uh, Sergeant Lovelace, I'm going to give you some medicine in your arm. And it'll help you relax. And it makes the hypnosis process much easier. And it'll help you recall things. And he says, now, if you would like to, I can ask these two agents to step out. And you and I can have a candid little conversation. And if there's anything you'd like to change in your story, you can do it now. And we may, maybe, maybe we don't have to do any of this. And the two agents stood up. And I said, Brad, I've, I've told these two guys the truth. And the two agents sat down. And then he proceeded and rolled up my arm, and he gave me an injection, which I saw, I found out later, sodium, sodium amytal was the drug that was commonly used by the OSI in the 70s. And this was not an unusual process. And 
I, I knew my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And I'd been taking psychology classes on base for two years. And I knew a little bit about psych, about, about hypnotism. And I, I knew enough to know that I could not, I could resist the hypnotism. You know, the drug worried me, but I knew I could resist the hypnotism. And I did. And he took me through a progressive relaxation exercise that went on for, started with relaxing your limbs and your face. And he had a very smooth voice, like a radio announcer. It was easy to listen to. And he says, I'm going to count down. Uh, you're going to go down 10 stairs. And with each step you take, you're going to feel twice as relaxed. Taking the ninth step, feeling twice as relaxed. Taking the next step, feeling calm. And, and on like that. And in my mind's eye, I'm going up the stairs. I'm doing everything I can to resist, covertly resist his suggestions. But I had no, I had no control over the, over the medication. And he asked me, he said, Sergeant Lovelace, we're, we're at the bottom of the stairs now. And uh, he says, I want you to reach up and turn on a light because we're going to look around and we need the light on to see some things. There's a chain right in front of you. Reach up and turn it on right now. Just pull that chain. And I was curious if my arm would move involuntarily. And it did not. And he said again, more forcefully, reach up and pull that chain. So I did. But I did it of my own volition. I didn't do it because I was under any kind of hypnosis. I reached up and I, I pulled on the chain, put my arm in my lap, and assumed a relaxed position in the chair. And that's when he gave me the medication in my arm. And immediately, immediately, I felt this flush of warmth. It was actually very pleasant. It was it's called a hypnotic, and I can understand why. Uh, I was kind of in a dreamy state. I don't believe at all that I was ever hypnotized. And he says, he starts to question me. And he says, Terry, you and Toby went on a little camping trip, didn't you? And I said, yes, Brad. He said, my, that must have been exciting. And I said, yes, Brad. And he says, and there came a time when you saw some lights in the sky, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he says, but they weren't lights, were they, Terry? And I said, no. And I said, I think it was the space people. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe that came out of my mouth, but it did. And he said, he says, that, he says we're going to go back, and I, I want you to tell me what you see, not what you think, just what you see. We're going to go back and look around a little bit. And he had me in my mind's eye, and under the influence of the drug, I could see it. I could see it run like a movie in my head. I could see the whole thing play out. What happened was he he managed to pull up some things from my subconscious that I did not remember, and they were frightening things. They were things about being inside this craft. I recall that I was inside standing next to Tobias. We had been stripped by these little gray guys, and the inside of this craft was absolutely enormous. I mean, it was huge from the outside, but the inside looked twice as big. I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't know if we were, maybe they took us somewhere else. I don't know. I also noticed that there were other human beings in there that were situated like us, holding their clothing in their hands too. And we were frozen. We were like planks of wood. The only thing that I could move was my eyes. And I could see to my right, this group of people, about 20 people, and they were a mixed bag of men, women, and children. And they're lined up in, in an orderly fashion, rows of four. And 
I can see their eyes are darting all over the place and they're all crying. But we're segregated from those people, luckily. And then I I heard a woman screaming. You know, there's there's different characteristics of a scream. I mean, you can somebody can say boo and you'll scream or but there's a there's a specific type of scream that goes with physical pain. And that's what that's what I heard. I heard this woman was in pain. And I, I was at the point where I didn't think I could be any more terrified. Then I became aware that my friend was gone. He's no longer standing next to me. And I heard him screaming. And he was screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, no, no, no. And then he was just screaming. And I'm looking around the interior of the ship, and I could see that there were the little ubiquitous gray guys were all over the place. Uh, running around, but not, I mean, with purpose. I mean, it was an orderly thing. It wasn't chaos in there. But I saw a taller being, about six foot tall, who was who had a chalkish, pinkish complexion, who looked almost human, uh, except that he had just had two slits for a nostril, a slit for a mouth, and no ears to speak of. Uh, he, he was bald, uh, but he looked humanoid. Like I say, almost human. And as I'm looking around, moving my eyes, I'm looking at him. He turns and looks at me, and we locked eyes. And that was one of the most frightening parts of this whole experience. Because as soon as we locked eyes, this guy was in my head. And uh, it was it was unbelievable. I, 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 I could feel him in my head. I, he, he knew my thoughts. He knew my secrets secrets. He knew my wife. He knew everything about me. And all I could see reflected back from his eyes was just raw intellect, not an ounce of mercy or compassion or anything. Telepath is a weekly digital newsletter filled with the latest paranormal news, trending topics, and fresh articles from some of the most popular critical thinkers in the community today. Stay informed on your favorite paranormal podcasts and live streaming talk shows. Interact with the telepath and upload your paranormal story or pics. It could be featured in an upcoming edition. Sign up right now for the free telepath newsletter at paranormal.radio. That's paranormal.radio. It was frightening, and that's that's one of the recurring nightmares that I've had over the last forty years. Was that instance of locking eyes with that with that uh, being? And I remembered, with Brad's help, I remembered being on the table, and I was screaming, and I could fill my lungs with air, and I scream, but I could hear I couldn't hear anything come out, and I kept screaming, and at the at down by my spine. They were doing something to my lower spine, and it hurt like it hurt very bad. And uh, and I'm screaming, I'm screaming because I'm scared, and I'm screaming screaming because they're hurting me. And I must have annoyed. There was this the thing that was manipulating my lower back and hurting me was this seven foot tall. I'm guessing because I'm not sure of the height of the table, insectoid looking thing, uh, very bug like looking. And in my mind's eye, I see him in a white lab coat, but I don't think he was in a lab coat. I think my mind filled that in for some reason. 
telepathically, he turned to me. And I guess my screaming annoyed him. And he says, why do you scream? You know we don't hurt you. You know we take you back. Now stop screaming. And he hit me on the head with his finger, long green digit. And I was out. And the next thing I remembered was we were by the car. They had dumped us out of this thing, and we were by the car. And I'm only semi-conscious. And I remember thinking, somebody somebody messed us up because they, they should put us back in the tent. And sure enough, there were four great little gray guys there. They dragged us back and threw us back in the tent. And, you know, my boots were unlaced. My socks were on sideways. It was obviously we'd been undressed and redressed without uh, any degree of care. That was it for the memories. And what he wanted to know after all of this and after everything I told him, he says, now this is very important, Terry. He says, I want to know, did you take any pictures of this thing? And I said, no, Brad. I answered honestly. And he says, that's very good. And he says, and all these ugly memories that you have, I'm going to take them away for you. I'm going to give you a suggestion and you'll forget them on the count of three. And I thought, you're not taking these memories from me. I own these. You know, I experienced this. You know, I, I, I'm not relinquishing anything to anybody. I own these memories. And, and that's why I kept them. And we were done. I noticed that, let me go back. I'm sorry. After he touched me with the green digit and I was out by the car and they threw us back in the tent. But I need to back up and cover one more thing that happened inside that craft. And that was, I saw either five or six humans. And they were dressed in tan flight suits with orange insignias. And they were clearly crew members. And they had military-style haircuts consistent with the day, 1977. And they wore, I swear, what looked like issue combat boots. These guys would not look at us. I could not get their attention. Of course, all I could move is my eyes. And they would not look at us. And when I when I recalled that memory, that really struck a nerve. And uh, I heard the captain speak an expletive that I can't repeat. So evidently, that's a that's a big secret. You know, the other thing that's haunted my dreams, and I want to mention real quick, is um, there were about 15 or 20 people in there. And they kicked us out. But those poor souls, they, they, they stayed in the craft and they went straight up. And I've often wondered what, what happened to those people? You know, did they, did they taxi them home? I don't think so. You know, I think they went somewhere for some reason. So I got out of the military in 1979. They were satisfied with my hypnosis session, satisfied I wasn't hiding anything. Uh, they asked me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I did and which I'm breaking, which I don't care, got out of the military and tried to forget the whole thing. One of the things I did right as I got out of the military was I started to run. And it was called jogging back then. It was kind of actually, actually, it was kind of a new idea. I mean, if you think about it, if you look at any photographs or movies from the 50s and 60s or before, you never see anybody run in a street unless they're running away from someone or something. You know, people ran on an athletic field, you know, or they ran from some danger. But the idea of running on city streets for for the health of it was a brand new concept. 
And that sounds strange to people today, I know. But I started running for the health benefit of it. I noticed that every time I hit the two-mile mark in my run, I had an area above my knee and to the right that would go completely numb. And I could take a pin. It was a size about the size of a of a United States half dollar or Canadian toonie, good size. And I could take a pin and delineate the uh, the outline of the thing. And it was a perfect circle. And it was it was it was numb as if like a, like a dentist gives you a shot of Novocaine in the mouth and you and you you get that numb sensation. That's the that's the exact sensation I would get every time I hit the two mile mark in my run. And I asked my doctor about it. My doctor said, that's eh, nothing to worry about. It's probably a histemic reaction of some kind. If it doesn't interfere with your run, I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't for 40 years. And then in 2012, I got up out of bed and realized I couldn't bear weight on my right leg. And I fell and I said, something is wrong with my leg. And I had my wife take me. I get all my medical care through the Veterans Administration. And I had her take me there. And uh, they had a physician's assistant on duty. And she says, well, let's get an x-ray of your leg. She took she took two x-rays, one for kind of like a head-on shot, and then one kind of with my knee bent so they could see it from the side angle. And she says, I want to repeat these. And she did two more. And then she asked me, she says, Mr. Lovelace, were you ever uh, in combat or did you suffer a shrapnel wound or something that would account for a piece of metal in your leg? And I told her, no, ma'am, I never left the United States. I was here for the whole six years. And she says, well, you have an odd piece of metal in your body with two wires attached to it. I told her, I said, well, that's news to me, and I'd like to see the x-ray, please. And she says, sure. And she said, the radiologist is on his way down. I asked him to come down and take a look at him. So she put the two x-rays up on the, on the view box that were just to my left. And I was stunned. I, I saw this thing that looked like a, it was perfectly square, about the size of a fingernail, and it was clearly a man-made object. And there were two wires coming out of it. And the wires ran up toward my head. I don't know how far up they went. They went as far up as the x-ray. And what stunned me so was I realized that this computer chip-like thing lay directly underneath that spot that would go numb whenever I ran, whenever I hit the two-mile mark, give or take 100 yards, 50 yards. So there was a connection between that. At least I made that connection in my mind's eye. And the radiologist walks in and he says, oh, yes, yes, yes. He says, my goodness. He says, that's, that's an incredibly, how did you get that in your leg? And I said, Dr. Evan, I don't know. And he says, well, let's take a look. We're going to have, you're going to have a scar there. And I said, no, I don't, I don't have a scar there, doctor. And he looked at my leg for 10 minutes. And he was visibly shaken. And he explained, he says, you know, it's not possible to violate the integrity of your skin and bury something this deep into fascia and muscle without there being a corresponding scar. And I said, well, how often is it that you see a foreign body in the 
foreign object in the human body and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. I've never seen this before. He says, I don't know how this thing got into your body. And then I asked, well, you know, I've got this, these arrangement below my leg and my calf muscle. What, what are those? And they're, they look about the size of Tic Tacs, maybe a little bigger, and they're arranged in a floral pattern in the right dead center of my, of my calf muscle. And I asked him, what are those? And he says, well, you know, they look to be the same consistency as bone tissue, but I think not. I said, you think not? Why not, Doc? And he says, well, you know, I've never seen bone tissue spontaneously sprout in the middle of a muscle before. I've never seen it done multiple times and then arrange itself into a, into a geometric pattern like this. And he said, um, you have a very unusual need, Mr. Lovelace. And with that, they gave me crutches. They diagnosed the, the reason I couldn't bear weight on my leg had absolutely nothing to do with either the implant above or the implant below my leg. Nothing to do with that at all, whatsoever. I had a thing called a baker's cyst. Nothing to do with baking, of course. It was discovered by a man named Baker, and it was benign. It's a cyst that develops in back of the patella, and it resolves on its own in a couple of weeks. Uh, so totally unrelated to the implants, but it, um, it did me a favor because it brought them to my attention. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Next week, we'll pick up part two of Terra Story. Until next time, stay safe and have a great week. Yeah.
piled up all around us from our guns And again it was you
coração 